0: E.T.F. Prime is hosted by Nate Geraci, president of investment advisory firm, the E.T.F. Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in E.T.F.s involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Now it's time for ETF Prime
1: All right, joining me will be John a CEO of Sprott Asset Management, who over the past several months, they've launched five ETFs, including the first ever nickel miners ETF. Uh, They also launched a junior uranium miners ETF, a junior copper miners ETF, a lithium miners ETF, and uh, an energy transition materials ETF. So we're going to take a look at this. Entire segment of the market, Uh, Sprott is a global leader in precious metal and uh, energy transition investing. They already had uh, three miners ETFs out on the market, by the way, prior to launching these most recent ones. They also had an ESG physical gold ETF. So we're going to hear from John on the uh, high-level investment case around these various miners and metals and discuss Sprott's overall approach to ETFs as well. Really looking forward to this conversation. I'll also be joined this week by Scott Ladner, Chief Investment Officer of Horizon Investments, who they offer a full suite of model portfolios to advisors. Uh, These are ETF-centric model portfolios. And I think most listeners know I just love visiting with uh, portfolio strategists. I love hearing how they construct portfolios, how they're selecting ETFs, certainly their market views, and so uh, I'm going to get into all of that with Scott. Now, to start this week, I have on the line with me Tom Leiden, vice chairman of Vetify, and uh, speaking of visiting with portfolio strategists and getting a window into how they're thinking right now. Tom has some absolutely fascinating polling data from Vetify on everything you can possibly imagine as it pertains to uh, how advisors, I would say especially ETF-centric advisors, are thinking about the uh, markets and the economy and portfolio management and, of course, ETFs. So uh, let's just dive into that polling data now.
0: Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time.
2: This is a challenging time, probably the most challenging in 30 years. Coming out of the financial crisis, $600 in ETF assets. They're starting to understand that there's more opportunity outside of those major market indexes.
1: Tom, how have you been? Uh, Great having you back on the podcast. Hey, Nate. It's great to hear your voice. I've been looking forward to this. So, uh, look, as I understand it, you recently moderated a panel of advisors at the uh, PIMCO ETF Summit. And uh, from what you were uh, telling me, it sounds like there was a fantastic turnout in terms of the audience. But what was uh, particularly interesting was that you were able to glean some real insight into how advisors are actually thinking about the uh, markets and the economy right now. Because Vetify, as I noted... You've been polling advisors over the past month or so on uh, all sorts of questions, and we're going to share some of that uh, data here in a moment, but you were actually able to hear directly from the uh, horse's mouth, so to speak, on these different polling topics, which I think will help us add some context and color here. So let's just start with the event. Tell
2: us a little bit about uh,
1: that panel you hosted and sort of the overall backdrop here.
2: Yeah, it it was great, Nate. Every year... Uh, PIMCO does a great job, brings over 100 advisors to Newport Beach. Not a bad gig, I'll tell you. Uh, we get to sit around, listen to portfolio managers, strategists from PIMCO. But most importantly, a lot of the advisors there, and there's some pretty big ones, get to take the stage, get to share their ideas on strategy, on allocation, uh, debate in certain ways. And we had $3 billion-plus advisors on the panel talked about everything about state of the economy, talked about portfolio allocation, uh, more fixed income oriented, oriented, as you can imagine. But we also shared the data that we get from advisors on the weekly podcasts and webcasts that we do uh, at Vetify. There's thousands of advisors that are participating every month. And with that, they're open to share how they're feeling about their own strategies their feelings on the economy, their feelings on rates, and it was a real good working session where I was actually able to get people to uh, respond to me from the audience on how they felt about portfolio allocation, what they were feeling about what the next 12 months might bring, and it correlated very heavily with the data that we got from the webcast Surveys and polling questions.
1: Yeah, and that's what I, I love about this because you were again actually speaking to advisors managing real money. Uh, you, you noted you know multiple billion dollar plus advisors, and so I thought that would offer us a nice backdrop to go through some of this uh, vetify polling data, which again is on everything from uh, risk management to fixed income alternatives. Uh, international stocks, there's some uh, excellent stuff in here. And so what I did, Tom, was I I just flagged several questions, and we'll we'll see how many of these we can get through. But what I thought I'd do, let me tee these up. Uh, Perhaps you can offer a quick reaction, uh, add some context again from your PIMCO panel, and then uh, I'm certainly happy to jump back in as well. So first up, I thought, let's start macro here, pretty high level. And the question was... What do you expect to be the state of the U.S. economy by the end of the year, 2023? 58, yeah, per, yeah go ahead.
2: Not, not, not surprisingly, Nate. Uh, yeah, like you said, 58% said moderate recession. Uh, 23% said soft landing. Only 10% thought we'd be in a deep recession. And almost another uh, 9% said positive growth surprise. So look, most advisors at this point, Uh, whether it's from the polling questions or in person, feel that we'll have a moderate recession technically, but it will come in and the Fed, for the most part, is doing a decent job. I think most importantly, we're seeing that the transparency and the open communication about the signaling from the Fed has taken off some of the fear. We've also seen through uh the, the equity markets kind of bouncing back off of the October lows has been positive as well. And the fact that the Fed is chipping away at inflation, um, not as quickly as they'd hoped. But there may be some rising rates, one or two hikes between now and the end of the year. But then at that point, we'll kind of glide in and maybe nip a little bit of a recession. But it's not going to be as bad as people thought maybe three months ago.
1: Yeah, and you mentioned the Fed doing a decent job. And I don't necessarily disagree, though. I will say I I feel like if we go back a couple of years on the way they initially handled inflation, you know, maybe we we grade them a little bit differently. But to me, this is really the key question right now, because uh, I I think it gets into whether the Fed does, in fact, make some sort of policy error and what happens with inflation and, and corporate earnings. This really encompasses everything. And you had another polling question, which I want to fold in here. So the question was, what is your biggest concern with the fixed income market over the next six to 12 months? And 46% said rising rates. 36% said credit deterioration slash downgrades. 12% government policies and 7% defaults. And when I looked at that, Tom, to me, that actually speaks to some concerns about a potential Policy error by the Fed. I, I mean, as we see here today, 46% of advisors are still concerned about rising rates, right? Well, 36% are worried about credit deterioration, you know, which theoretically, if the Fed makes some sort of policy error uh, and the economy goes south, that's where you may get this credit deterioration. I thought that was pretty interesting. And again, I don't necessarily disagree with you that the Fed is doing a, a good job now, but I think it shows that the Fed is still what everyone is watching.
2: Right. What's interesting, and we'll get into it a little bit more, Nate, is although they're concerned about rising rates now and the Fed signaled that they've got another hike coming as early as next week, um, and there may be one more between now and the end of the year. However, if you ask advisors about 12 months from now, most feel that rates will be lower because at that point in time, uh, the Fed applied the medicine, the medicine's working. Inflation's under control, and we're not in a, uh, a painful recession. We've gone through periods of time where equity markets have done quite well during slow recessions, uh, and that's where most advisors are feeling today. So maybe a little bit more pain between now and 12 months from now with rising rates. And look, for the average advisor, and you feel this too, as, as I do as, as well, Nate, after a real tough year in the market last year, The worst year in 40 years for equities and fixed income, there's a lot of hand-holding that has to be done uh, with your clients. And at the same time, although you're optimistic about rebounds, it may take a little bit, especially in the fixed income side, to get back to stability. The good news is um, fixed income is actually paying something these days. So that's somewhat heartening for uh, clients. But most importantly, we want to get out of this inflationary period and get back to normal times.
1: Okay, so this is perfect, because the next question that I pulled, I think, plays into all of this and really starts getting us down the path of how advisors are thinking about portfolio manage right now, uh, management right now. And the uh, the question was, do you believe the standard 60-40 portfolio will deliver returns over the next 10 years that are lower higher or about the same as experienced in the last decade and the responses here so 51 percent said lower 34 percent said about the same and then only 15 percent said higher did did those results surprise you at all i mean that's a pretty uh you know pessimistic view overall
2: well, let me ask you: What, what do you think, Nate? Uh, over the next ten years, what would you say?
1: So, I guess I would respond by saying I think that it's easy to say equities might generate lower returns after the longer-term run-up we, we've had since what two thousand nine or whatever. You know, if you go all the way back to, to that point. Though I will say, you look year-to-date now. What are we up eight percent? But I, I think to me, the wild card is is really what you were hitting on before, which is fixed income, and I know it's becoming cliche to say there's uh, income in fixed income. You know, I've been saying that now for the past six months or whatever, but that's a game changer because you can now get 5% risk-free out of treasuries. And so I'm not just sure, I'm not sure you can just assume that returns from a 60-40 portfolio are going to be lower moving forward because you now have that, that 5% Risk free. We didn't have that before. You, you go back, a, yeah. you, you know, whatever, a year and a half. It was it was hardly anything. It was near zero, and then it, you know, I. Everybody knows. I mean, I, I take a longer term viewpoint on investing in general, but nobody has their crystal ball. I don't think we can just sit here today and say equity returns are automatically going to be lower over the next ten years than what we've seen over the past ten years. Clearly, U.S. stocks in particular, and maybe we can we can touch on international as well you know, had a fantastic run. I I said going back to 2009, but pick your date along that spectrum over the past 15 years or so. But to me, Tom, the the game changer is fixed income.
2: Yeah, and and you bring up the right points. Uh, Over the last 10 years, it would have been really tough to beat the S&P 500 on the equity side, if that's your benchmark, number one. And then we've really come off 30 years of a really great bull market of lower interest rates. Which really help bond portfolios. Um, your point about the f- getting five years and in fixed income—I'm um, sorry, five percent yield and in fixed income right now—is awesome. However, the question is: Is that going to be available a year from now? Most advisors don't feel it will be. Most advisors are feeling like, man, um, I don't want to think that I can top tip- tick the market. I know rates are going to be a little bit higher, but if we see another rate hike. They're starting to feel bullish about current yields, less bullish about yields a year from now. So they're going to try to lock in yields at those levels in the next six months because they don't feel that those yields will be available 12 months from now. Does
1: does that make sense? It makes perfect sense, and I'm glad you brought that up because one of the polling questions that I flagged, and and again, listeners, I've got to tell you, I mean, Tom sent me over a boatload of of polling data. It was fantastic. But the the question was, over the next six months, do you plan to extend or shorten duration in your clients' portfolios? And, again, you were alluding to this earlier with uh, advisors maybe thinking rates are going to come back in. 50% 50% said they would add duration, 38% said remain the same, and then only 12% said shorten duration. And I did think that was interesting because uh, of that 46% we mentioned earlier that said they are concerned about rising rates, right? I, I thought that was interesting, that uh, dichotomy there, that you have 46% of advisors saying they're concerned about rising rates, but then you have 50% adding duration. What, what did you think about that?
2: Yeah, I think it goes into that scenario. We are at a pivotal point. There's a huge amount of money that's in transition right now. You think about the last couple of years where most advisors had less confidence in 60-40 allocation. They were deconstructing their fixed income allocation, um, almost deconstructing the ag, looking for alternatives, putting money in cash or short duration. Now with rates back up to where they are, which are that much more attractive, feeling more confident in the 60-40, but at the same time knowing or feeling fairly confident that these yields won't be available a year or two from now, so they are going longer duration and trying to grab that that yield. Uh, At the same time, those advisors who were stringent about sticking to a 60-40 allocation and were fairly significantly hurt with the decline in both equities and fixed income, now are in a position where we're starting to chip back, uh, bring back some of those uh, losses that we saw last year, sticking to their knitting, and that will pay off. I think, though, uh, when you look at the average advisor thinking about the next 10 years, we're not going to see as much growth opportunity in equities, and we're not going to see a sliding rate environment where you can pick up appreciation in your bond portfolio because there's not that much lower to go, right?
1: Well, you know what's interesting here is um, you had another polling question, and this is more on the ETF front. I I pulled some other ETF questions as well, which we can certainly touch on, but I thought this was interesting in light of what you just said. So Vetify asked, within fixed income, which instruments have the largest allocations in your client portfolios? And actually, 46% said active mutual funds. 7% 7% passive mutual funds. And, of course, I'm I'm rounding here if we have any uh, math nerds that are trying to get this all to, to add up to 100. Um, active ETFs, 29%, and passive ETFs, 18%. What's interesting there is that if you look at that 46% for active mutual funds and 29% for active ETFs, it shows that uh, you know maybe advisors are saying, hey, I better have somebody else in the room to help me manage what may happen with rates moving forward. I don't know if that jumped out at you at all.
2: Yeah, no, well – it's funny, we're celebrating every year the growth of the ETF market, uh, more ETFs available, the assets, the, uh, the positive flows versus redemptions in mutual funds, but we just have to keep reminding ourselves that the money in mutual funds, what is it, 16, 17 trillion mm-hmm. dollars still, uh, just shadows the amount of money that we have in ETFs. So, I mean, we're chipping away at it, and we have a lot of advisors out there that are big fans of ETFs and use them regularly for client portfolios. But a lot of these big firms grew their assets over the past two or three decades on the backs of mutual funds and active managers. So uh, that the numbers sound right. And also, as you point out, it's really nice during um, times of volatility to not just have index-based strategies because that's all on you as the advisor. It's nice to look back and see on your bench that there's some really smart people behind these strategies. And uh, it's nice during these times to be able to turn to them for their expertise in addition to being able to have diversified portfolios. And and Nate, I I mean, I know you're a big ETF fan as well, but you've been through the growth of the fund industry and now the growth of the, the ETF marketplace being able to lean on a, a good asset manager or a portfolio manager that you trust, uh, that's important, right?
1: Well, I think for a lot of advisors that I talk to, and this is not every everyone, there are a lot of advisors that are extremely well-versed on both the equity side and fixed income side. But I, if I were, and maybe this would be a good future poll question for you, if I were to, to break down where advisors maybe have more weakness, it is on the fixed income side. I think a lot of advisors are very comfortable on the equity side of the equation. But as you start digging into the fixed income market, there's maybe not quite as much expertise there. And so I think that it, it makes sense that they would lean on an active manager more in fixed income than uh, on the equity side. Um, Tom, I'm, I'm jumping around a little bit here, but I, I really want to get your take on international stocks because when we talk about the 60-40 portfolio returns moving forward, I do feel like international stocks could uh, change the calculus here. Because you, you think about this. I mean, international has mostly been a, uh, a dud over the past decade plus. And you, you had a polling question here. So let me give those results, and then I'd love to hear your thoughts. So the question was, do you expect your clients' international equity allocations to increase, decrease, or remain the same over the next 12 months? 67%, 67% said increase, uh, 29% remain the same, and then about uh, you know 3 or 4% decrease. So do, do you think that's right? I mean, could international stocks maybe compensate for potentially lower returns from U.S. stocks?
2: Well, I think a lot of people are looking at valuations, and there's some very good companies overseas that are trading at almost a 40% discount to U.S. stocks. Uh, we have seen over the past ten years, um, U.S. equities just murder international equities, and eventually the pendulum will swing back. And I think most advisors know that. We've seen so far year to date, uh, just looking at ETF flows, there are thirty-three billion dollars that have, have gone into international equities, and uh, not quite seven into U.S. equities. So that that's starting. Is that going to continue? Not really sure, Uh, but if you can buy really quality companies on the cheap and further diversify diversify portfolios, diversify currency allocations at the same time, it it makes a lot of sense, Nate. The question is, how committed from an allocation standpoint is the average advisor going to be? Uh, What you don't want to do is see continued movement in international equities like we've seen in the last six months versus U.S. equities and not be there, so if you 're diversified and you 've had a diversified allocation, great at the same time, if you 've had the home country bias for all these years and you 've been rewarded uh, don 't continue to make that bet. Now might be the time to diversify, especially with those valuations how do you How do you feel about? international allocation for your clients.
1: Well, look, my point here is that if we go back to that polling question on the 60-40 portfolio where it sounds like the majority of people think that returns are going to be lower moving forward, I'm just saying not so fast uh, when you look at fixed income and the potential for international stocks to outperform. That could compensate for U.S. equity, uh, let's just say underperformance moving forward. So I, I don't have a crystal ball, Tom. I just think that um, you, you can't count that out. And You know, this thing runs in cycles. If you look, there's a great chart from J.P. Morgan that shows uh, U.S. versus international stock performance. Uh, It goes back, I I don't know, 50 years. And there's pretty clear cycles of outperformance. And we just concluded the longest cycle of U.S. outperformance that's on that chart. Now, to your point, will that be sustainable moving forward again? I I don't know. I, I do believe that you should have some international diversification In client portfolios. Uh, But but look, it's tough, right? Because any advisor who has done that over the past, again, 10 years or whatever, they haven't been rewarded. And you have clients saying, why do I own developed international? Why do I own emerging markets? Uh, You know, emerging markets in particular have been basically a zero in in terms of return. So I, I get it. It's tough. But Usually when things are extremely tough and nobody wants to own them is, is when they start uh, performing. So I don't know. That's we'll right.
2: You're yeah. absolutely right, Nate. And we have to, you know, we have to move, remove the emotions of this. And I think most advisors, and, and we've got tons of confidence in the advisor community, it's just great getting to see them one-on-one last week uh, at PIMCO because their, uh, their conviction has not waived. Uh, they feel very confident, and there are a lot of good advisors out there. I've I just, i I've got renewed enthusiasm.
1: <laughs> Tom, if we uh, put international stocks aside, I want to get to a few more questions here. Let's assume most advisors or more advisors do believe returns could be lower for a 60-40 portfolio over the next decade. To me, that means they might look to alternative strategies, right, Is mm-hmm. a way to boost returns. And you did have several questions on that topic. So I, I want to ask you specifically about commodities, just because I'll be joined here shortly by uh, Sprott's John Champaglia. We're going to talk miners ETFs, which I, I think you could put in the commodities category. There are obviously some differences with uh, pure play commodity ETFs. But the, the first question was, what are your plans for allocating to commodities? And 36% said, I am increasing allocations or looking for new funds slash ETFs. said I am not making any changes. 24% said I do not allocate to active commodity products. And then 5% said I am decreasing allocations. And then there was another question which asked, uh, how are you currently getting exposure to the commodities markets? 39% said broad basket uh, or broad commodity basket. Uh, 19% said gold or silver. 15% natural resource equities, which I think falls into my conversation uh, with, with Sprott. And then uh, 14% said none and 13% emerging market. So, um, you know, I, I've got to say, I guess if I am John and Sprott, I think I'm feeling pretty good because it looks like the Sprott ETFs might get some more looks here uh, if advisors do think that uh, returns are going to be lower moving forward and they may look to some other spaces that maybe they haven't trafficked in before. Any
2: thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, what Sprott's doing is, is- – I think their timing's right, but if you look at the last couple of years, if you deconstructed your 60-40 allocation, let's just say you put a 10 or 15% allocation to a broad commodity basket, it probably paid off. A lot of advisors historically have had an allocation to gold during times of inflation, but gold up until recently has been a stinker. It was the worst performing area in the commodity space. Energy was the place to be, so if you had that broad basket you probably participated because of the energy allocation, not necessarily because of precious metals. However, recently we've seen an uptick in the metals, and a lot of that is not just central banks that are buying gold you know, you know hand over fist, but we're also seeing the demand continue to increase in, as far as jewelry, jewelry allocation. As far as base metals, and you're going to probably talk more about that, You just can't get enough of that out of the ground. And while economies have pulled back a little bit, there's huge demand for future growth. And we need base metals as a part of that. So purely from a supply and demand standpoint and the diversification standpoint – It makes all the sense in the world, and it takes a little pressure off your equity and your fixed income allocation.
1: Uh, By the way, since uh, your colleague, our good friend Todd Rosenbluth, is not here to defend himself, I just want to put out there that I'm feeling really good about uh, our gold ETF bet. Uh, if, If you recall... I have predicted that we'll have more than five billion of inflows into uh, physical gold ETFs this year. It started really slow, uh, but but has come on here lately. And again, I do think uh, a lot more investors are looking at gold and, and other metals. So uh, I'm feeling good, Tom. We only have a, a few minutes left. So as you heard at the top, I'll also be joined later by Horizon Scott Ladner, uh, who they construct model portfolios for advisors using ETFs. And so I thought this would be the perfect way to close. Uh, by discussing that topic, because two of the polling questions you had, I, I I thought, spoke to this. So the first question was, do you use ETF model portfolios in your practice? 73%. 73% said, yes, they currently use. 20% said, no, do not currently use. And then about 8% said, I am evaluating the space. And then also, uh, when asked, what portion of your Book of business is allocated to active ETFs, which I know we touched on earlier, but I, I thought this fit in here. 59% said 1% to 25%. 20% said 35 to 50% of their book of business was allocated to active ETFs. 14% zero, and then 50% plus uh, said 7%. To, to me, just as I looked at both of those questions, first of all, I thought that the number of advisors using ETF model portfolios was way higher than I expected, which I thought was great. But then maybe a little bit lower when I thought about the percentage currently allocated to active ETFs. To me, just as I saw those, I thought I see a lot of opportunities for ETFs moving forward. That, that, that's encouraging to me.
2: It is, and I think one thing you can pull out of that data, Nate, is most of us, believe that model portfolios are somewhat stagnant in their allocation, and we know from uh, the ETF strategists out there that have model portfolios that other ETF uh, or or advisors utilize that that's not the case. Uh, We know from polling that over 60% of advisors have some type of tactical strategy in their portfolios, whether that they do that themselves through trend following, or they follow models that Uh, implement trend-following strategies. So even though we have a lot of discipline um, among the advisor community with model portfolios, that doesn't mean that the portfolios aren't in motion based on current economies or current markets. So it makes a heck of a lot of sense. uh, And I think for the average advisor that wants to spend time building their business, spending time with clients, it pays off to use models, especially those that are somewhat fluid based on what's going on in the market.
1: Well, Tom, excellent stuff as always this week. I know I'm a broken record. I just love this uh, polling data. So I uh, really appreciate you going through this. And by the way, uh, congrats. I saw yet another press release this morning from Vetify uh, announcing that Sigma Logic, creator of Logically, is the uh, the, the newest component of all of the offerings uh, at Vetify. So I'm sure we'll talk about that on a, a future podcast. But thank you for joining me.
2: Yeah, thanks, Nate. And good luck this week, Uh I know you've got the NFL draft in your backyard. Hope you're there and hope you enjoy it. Hey,
1: uh, Kansas City's going for a, a repeat Super Bowl championship. We'll see what we can uh, get out of the draft. But, Tom, thank you. Always, always great chatting. Thanks, Nate. That was Tom Lydon, vice chairman of Vetify. The U.S.
0: Benchmark Series is a set of 10 ETFs that make it easier for advisors and investors to access the U.S. Treasury market. The U.S. Benchmark Series ETFs offers investors the following advantages over directly purchasing U.S. Treasury securities. Simplified access to 10 separate U.S. Treasury securities covering distinct points along the yield curve from 3 months to 30 years. Monthly dividends providing a more frequent and regular interest payment than holding the underlying securities. Automatic rolls that provide constant benchmark exposure without hassle or added expense. And at $50 per share, the ability to transact in fractions of traditional bond sizing. The U.S. Benchmark Series ETFs also provide enhanced tax efficiency, intraday liquidity, and the ability to take short positions and utilize options to express specific views on U.S. rates. U.S. Benchmark Series Treasury ETFs make it easy, cheap, and tax efficient to own and roll treasuries for clients.
1: next guest is John Champaglia, CEO of Sprott Asset Management, who's long been a leader in precious metal investing. And now, as we'll get into, they're clearly a leader in energy transition investing as well. And here in the U.S., they currently offer nine ETFs, nearly $1.3 billion in assets. That includes five new ETFs that have launched this year one of which is the first-ever Nickel Miners ETF. Uh, John is now joining me from Toronto. John, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Great to be on. All right, so we'll obviously get into your uh, ETF lineup, but my sense is that some investors might not be uh, overly familiar with Sprott. And so I thought... Let's uh, start there. Perhaps tell us a little bit about the firm. Uh, I know to the expertise in precious metals and energy transition metals, maybe talk about that and just your overall asset management business.
3: Yeah, sure. Great. Thank you. So, um, well, we're based uh, in Toronto and, and have offices in, in New York and Connecticut and California. So we're kind of sprinkled all around North America. Uh, the company has roots going all the way back to 1981, It was founded by Eric Sprott, um, who is now you know, doing his own thing with his family office, but his legacy carries on. And Eric was a very early investor and proponent of precious metals, and we're very well known for that. We have uh, several multi-billion dollar closed-end funds, uh, which don't always make it into the ETF universe, but uh, you know, these are m- multi-billion dollar gold and silver uh, closed-end funds that trade on the New York Stock Exchange. And in the last couple of years, um, you know, we've made a pretty interesting pivot with our business to take advantage of what we think is a really interesting long-term thematic uh, related to energy transition. And energy transition is really a way of saying moving to cleaner technologies, uh, moving to cleaner energy, moving uh, to electric vehicles, uh, increased electrification and decarbonization of our economies, industrial processes, etc. And, you know, as long-time investors in mining and commodities, what we realize is that this transition is going to be incredibly resource intensive in terms of the raw materials that we will need to enable all of these things I've just mentioned. So, you know, whether it's energy generation, things like uranium are obviously the key fuel to produce zero greenhouse gas emitting nuclear energy. Things like solar obviously require lots of things, uh, metals like copper and silver. Um, electric vehicles are, are probably the most diverse in terms of the requirements related to lithium, copper, nickel, manganese, cobalt, you know, graphite, rare earths, you name it. And we think this transition is going to last for decades. And it is clearly being driven by net zero uh, targets and goals being announced by, by countries around the world. And we also think it's being driven by something that the world hasn't really had to deal with for, for many decades, and that's energy security. And, uh, you know, obviously in the last year or so, the world learned uh, what happens when uh, a, a country can become aggressive and attack a neighbor and disrupt a lot of commodity markets, in particular energy markets. And that created a pretty severe energy crisis last year, particularly in Asia and Europe, which are not you know, energy abundant like, like we are in Canada and the United States. And that has really, I think, galvanized political will to accelerate this energy transition. And if you look at some of the major pieces of legislation in the world, like like the Infrastructure Bill in the United States, the Inflation Reduction Act, the green energy deal in the, in the European Union, governments are essentially throwing hundreds of billions and we think closer to two trillion when you add it all up in terms of incentives to accelerate this energy transition in part because of growing concerns about energy security. So we think it's a very interesting thematic.
1: John, if we take a step back, and I do want to talk more about this pivot into the the energy transition metals, but I was looking at your lineup. So you actually launched your first ETF here in the U.S. back in 2014. That's the Sprott Gold Miners ETF, ticker SGDM. You follow that up a year later with the uh, Junior Gold Miners ETF, ticker SGDJ, and then in uh, 2019. You rolled out a Uranium Miners ETF, ticker URNM. And then last year, a uh, physically backed ETF, the Sprott ESG Gold ETF, ticker SESG. And and then we'll talk about these five new ETFs that came out this year. But I'm just curious, if we take a step back, what's been the overall approach to ETFs specifically here in the U.S.?
3: Sure. Yeah. So we, uh, as you mentioned, we we launched our first ETF in 2014, and this was really – complement some of the closed-end funds, the physical-backed closed-end funds that we launched uh, in the United States starting in 2010 and 11, um, And we really wanted to bring our knowledge as active managers and long-time investors in mining, mining and metal and commodities, we wanted to bring that, that DNA and that knowledge base into these passive approaches to ETF. So, yes, they're all passively managed, but I think it's fair to say that brought was very involved in the design of the ETFs in conjunction with our index sponsors. So we tried to come up with with offerings that were different, that that utilize a lot of our knowledge in terms of what we thought makes sense. Um, we often see other sponsors put together uh, ETFs in the mining space that you can kind of tell, you know, that they, they don't really have a lot of expertise. And we sometimes scratch our head around around some of those uh, you know the index construction, and methodologies, and whatnot. So um, we've so we built we built some ETFs from scratch. We made an acquisition of the the North Shore Uranium Mining ETF about a year ago. Um, that was a very successful acquisition for us. And from that ETF, we really pivoted to the broader suite of uh, energy transition material ETFs that we launched in in 2023. I think it's fair to say that, you know, as a small boutique money manager, our approach to entering the market is about bringing our knowledge um, in areas where we think we can add value, filling segments that don't, you know, basically have a a good solution or any solution. So we're very mindful about which, which segments we want to play in.
1: Okay, so in February, you did launch those four new ETFs focused on energy transition metals. And let me just go through these real quick. There's the Sprott Energy Transition Metal uh, Materials ETF, ticker SETM, a Lithium Miners ETF, LITP, a Junior Uranium Miners ETF, URNJ, and a uh, Junior Copper Miners ETF, COPJ. And then last month, you did launch the first ever Nickel Miners ETF, ticker NIKL. And, of course, that falls into this energy transition suite as well. You you were talking a little bit about this earlier, but I'd love to have you just connect the dots a little bit here in terms of how some of these metals fit into the energy transition. And if you want to use a specific example, say, like electric vehicles, maybe that'd be good. But, you know, why are these medicals so critical here? Mm -hmm.
3: Sure. Um, Yeah, I'd be happy to. So we, we break it down into three buckets. Energy generation, so how do you produce clean energy? Um, and there's a few ways you can produce clean energy. You can obviously uh, produce renewable energy through the sun and wind and geothermal and hydroelectric. And then, and we believe nuclear energy is part of the low-carbon suite of energy generation. So, what do you need to actually enable those technologies? Well, for nuclear energy, which we believe is, is undergoing a renaissance worldwide, including the United States, you need uranium. That's the, obviously the fuel that uh, provides the nuclear reaction in the core. But for things like solar panels, I think most people would be surprised to know that about 10% of all the silver produced in the world each year goes into solar panels. Uh, It's turned into a paste, and it basically helps with the efficiency of solar panels. When you think about wind, wind obviously requires things like steel, aluminum. It also requires permanent magnets, so that's part of that rare earth sweep. Of, of, of materials. If you think about energy transmission, well, the star there is obviously copper. Uh, as we electrify and we build more renewable energy, the energy has to be transported over longer ranges to urban centers, so copper is kind of the star there. Copper is also a key material uh, in electric vehicles. The average amount of copper in an EV compared to an internal combustion engine is materially different. Uh, so copper plays a number of roles. And then finally, energy storage. That's just another way of saying batteries. And batteries are mostly in electric vehicles. And obviously, there's lots of technologies being developed for large-scale storage of energy to basically back up intermittency of renewable energy. But when you talk about energy, uh, sorry, EV batteries, we're really talking about a host of critical minerals. Lithium is kind of the star there because it's common to every battery chemistry in the world. Nickel. Manganese, cobalt, graphite, those are all key materials that you need in an EV. Um, and then there's also some rare earths in, in, inside of EVs as well that are used for, for permanent magnets. So most of these materials exist in the world, but they have historically been very small you know, players in terms of the amount that we use. It's really been the shift to renewable energy and the growing adoption of EVs that is accelerating the demand profile for these critical minerals. And that's why we think it's a very interesting thematic.
1: No, that was a great overview. And I, I do want to call out for listeners, if you go to uh, com, there is what I thought was an excellent uh, white paper. And within that, there's a, a matrix that lays out the different uses for these metals, which I found very helpful. If you're somebody looking at the space and you want to understand, uh, for instance, that copper is used in hydropower or... Uh, you know rare earths are used in wind power whatever the case may be you have that matrix and explain how how these different metals were used i thought that was really helpful Um, john in terms of the etfs and you can certainly highlight any of them if you'd like but i'll call out the nickel miners etf in particular just because this is a first of its kind can you talk a little bit more about the basic construction here just just high level
3: yeah, absolutely. So we, what we find in talking to investors around the world is they're mostly invested in the downstream part of the energy transition. So obviously, we've had clean energy uh, ETFs for many, many years, you know, think about, you know, solar ETFs and, and things, ETFs focused on, uh, uh, you know, wind and, and, and other forms of clean energy. But what we don't have a, 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 an abundance of or ETFs focused on energy transition in the upstream part of the supply chain. And the upstream is obviously the primary production of these critical minerals that go downstream into the manufacturing of all these technologies. And we think that's the really interesting part of the opportunity. We talk to many investors around the world that say, hey, if, if these demand profiles play out, um, we're obviously going to need massive investment. In infrastructure related to the production of these raw materials the processing of these raw materials and obviously downstream in terms of you know building gigafactories and, and car plants for EVs and whatnot so what we wanted to bring to, to the market were ETFs focus on pure play exposure uh, and and it's important to get pure play exposure because it's very easy to have very scattered exposure so for example Uh, You might say, well, why aren't some of these, you know, the world's largest mining companies in your ETFs? And the answer is not because they're not great mining companies and not because they don't have a role to play in energy transition, but they don't have enough pure play exposure to the main themes that we're focused on. So, for example, they may be primarily iron ore producers. Will we need more steel in the energy transition? Absolutely. But will we see the demand for steel go up exponentially because of energy transition? Not likely. So we're really focused on the pure play companies that give you exposure to the critical minerals that we think are going to be the big beneficiaries. And that's a process that Sprott has uh, developed in conjunction with our our partner, NASDAQ Indexing. Uh, We developed the indexes with them. Sprott basically does all the research to to define which metals go into the groups, um, which which companies are are good candidates for our investment universe. And we actually go through every company, financial statements, to understand exactly what exposure and what role does it play in this energy transition thematic. And we score each company. We give all of that data every six months to NASDAQ and then they put together the index. So it's absolutely a passive rules-based approach. But I think it's fair to say that we're quite active in terms of the, the management of uh, the construction of the index and the ongoing management of it.
1: John, just about a minute left here. The Sprott mm-hmm. Energy Transition Materials ETF, again, ticker SETM, is that essentially a, uh, a catch-all that, that offers exposure to all of these metals? So let's say an investor doesn't want to get as granular as investing in, say, copper miners or uranium miners. Does this offer exposure to all of those
3: that's exactly it. I mean, we we talk to, you know, advisors and institutions or individuals that have very clear views on, you know, lithium, for example, or copper. And then other investors, I mean, I just got off the phone with one and said, you know, we're not really sure which metal to play. Um, so maybe the basket approach where I get some exposure to uranium and lithium and copper and nickel and rare earths and cobalt and manganese and graphite um, in some proportion um Maybe, maybe that's just a, an easier way for me to play this thematic.
1: Well, John, excellent insight this week. Uh, congratulations on all the recent launches. Uh, best of luck to you. Again, I, I think this is a very interesting suite of ETFs. But thank you for joining me.
3: Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
1: That was John Shimpalia, CEO of Sprott Asset Management. Is it time to amplify
0: your income potential? Explore what a high-quality covered call strategy can do for your monthly income needs. Discover Amplify DIVO and IDVO, providing monthly income potential and active management in the efficiency of an ETF. When income matters to you, explore Amplify ETFs. Get current monthly yields at AmplifyYields.com. There's no guarantee that distributions will be made. Investing risk includes principal loss. ETFs are subject to covered call risk. Visit AmplifyETFs.com to view a prospectus which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully. Amplify ETFs are distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC.
2: I'm
1: now joined by Scott Ladner, Chief Investment Officer at Horizon Investments, who offers a unique lineup of ETF-centric, goals-based model portfolios, which we'll get into And Scott himself has an interesting background in derivatives and risk management. So prior to Horizon, he helped launch an equity index volatility and dispersion trading unit. Uh, He founded and ran an equity swap and forwards portfolio. He managed equity option and volatility portfolios, a uh, risk arbitrage and special situations portfolio. He has pretty much seen it all. And he's now joining me from uh, Charlotte, Scott. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Nate, appreciate it. All right, so tell us a little bit more about uh, Horizon Investments and specifically the model portfolio side of the business. Who do you work with? How long have you been doing this? Just give us a few high level details here.
4: Yeah, sure. Um, so so Horizon Investments is uh, we're, we're a third party asset manager. Uh, do a lot in the ETF model portfolio space. Um, as, as you mentioned, we're, we're headquartered in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, we have about $8 billion under management um, and have been doing this about, about 20 years. You know, our, um, you know, we have about uh, 75 folks in our firm, about 20 on the investment side. Um, so, we're, you know, we're kind of a kind of a big little shop uh, to, to some extent. Um, and, and the folks that we have on the investment side are, are pretty intentionally have a, have, a, have, a, have a wide variety of sort of backgrounds. So, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, I've got sort of a background in derivatives trading and volatility modeling and things like this. Um, but we've also got uh, you know, our PhD mathematicians and computer scientists. We've got you know, kind of guys that are, that are sort of experts of foreign exchange and, uh, and, and rate strategy um, and some kind of fundamental uh, sort of people that look at 10Qs and talk to management and kind of on more on the fundamental side. So you know, the, the, the group is a fun group to work with. Um, sort of a lot of smart people, but not a whole lot of overlap in our different experience sets. So that makes for, um, for some very entertaining sort of uh, research meetings. Um, but as I mean as far as the, the the product suite um you know we 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 generally run in what's called a goals based framework um and and we have three uh, sort of basically verticals of product uh, and we call them gain protect and spend um but they're essentially portfolios that are meant uh kind of have a primary objective of either uh, making money or protecting money or ultimately sort of spending money um and um and, you know you can think about it if you're more of an insurance person you could think about our product set as. Basically, a deconstructed liquid variable annuity. Um, so there's a growth engine, a protection engine, and a distribution engine. Um, and we've, uh, you know, we've got we've run these portfolios with LiveTrack for you know 10, 15 years. So it's um, it's been a a fun ride so far. A really, a really
3: good group to work with.
1: Yeah. So the goals-based model portfolios are are really what caught my attention. I know you offer a lot of solutions for advisors, but those really stood out for me. And I'd love to have you just explain that a little bit more. I just want to make sure we crystallize this idea around the goals-based portfolios. How, how does that compare to say um, other types of portfolio management you see, and, and perhaps specifically methods that maybe you don't necessarily view as optimal?
4: Yeah, sure. I mean, so look, the the entire goals-based framework comes uh, comes from a place of um, redefining the investment problem, and and the the way that we do it specifically at Horizon is. You know what? What would, an, what would an investment program or what would an investment um, strategy look like if it were constructed for a person rather than an institution? So, so you know, so an investment strategy that is that is built around mom, like not built around mom's pension plan, and not serving, you know, not, not primarily serving that. And 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 what you come away, with, you kind of think about that problem. It's an interesting problem. Um, and and if you think about that problem, uh, what you what you come away with is is that uh, you must incorporate the concept of time. Like if, if I'm going to have an investment program that is that is built for a person, is built for mom, um, you know, like unfortunately mom's going to live, and mom's going to die at some point, point. and so you're incorporating time into the that you know into the into the into the investment process in a very formal and, and you know both mathematical and philosophical way uh, ends up being pretty important. Um, and, the, and the corollary of that, if you do have to intent, intentionally incorporate time in the investment process somewhere, you you end up with this sort of inescapable conclusion that the primary objective. For mom's portfolio, has to change through time, right? So that so that you know, the mom's portfolio when she's 25 years old should be doing something fundamentally different than when she's 75 years old, which is a completely trite and obvious thing to say, but it's but it's true nonetheless. Um, and and the, and the, you know, it's sort of the the outcropping from if you agree with that st- statement, then what we would also say is that if the primary objective for the portfolio changes through time, then the primary met- metric that we use to define risk also has to change through time. And if you break investment management down to its core, like what did the investment, kind of the golden equation of investment management is max return over risk, right? I mean, this is what we're all trying to do in investment management. I don't care if you run a hedge fund, or a mutual fund, or a pension fund. I don't care what it is. Um, you're always trying to max return for some unit of risk. And what Goldsbase says is, listen, we think both the numerator, you know, the return or the objective of the portfolio, and the denominator, or the definition of risk, we think both of those things change, both math- 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 mathematically and philosophically as we walk through time. And so essentially what we've, what we've got is we've got three distinct sort of optimization problems that we're solving for. We're, we're solving for a kind of max return relative volatility problem in the, in the gain stage of, of folks. We're maximizing a kind of a protection relative to an absolute loss kind of problem in the in the more the protect stage. and we're maximizing the amount of distribution we can get out of our portfolio relative to the probability that we're going to run out of money in the, in the, in the distribution stage. So there's basically three distinct investment problems that we're trying to solve. And, and, the, and the, the solutions you come up with um, for, for each of those three things is going to be different um, than, you, than, than, than a kind of a traditional kind of mean variance sort of approach. Um, it, you know, it just is. Uh, and, and so that, um, you know, that way of thinking about the world, that way of thinking about sort of the investment problem that we're fundamentally trying to solve um, does lead to some of the techniques that we use on the investment side and some of the portfolios that we construct um, and basically why we do what we do the way that we do it.
1: What an excellent description, Scott. And I think the way that you lay that out—that's—that's that's different than maybe some advisors are used to hearing. And I, I just want to, uh, to 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 hammer this home: the three stages that you mentioned. So if we boil this down, the gain stage—that's accumulating wealth with a, a plan to support and enhance important financial goals. The protect stage is guarding wealth by investing within risk tolerance and attempting to avoid losses that can derail plans and and jeopardize financial uh, longevity. And then the spend stage, just ensuring wealth is available for a lengthy retirement. So I I love the way that that's constructed. I'm curious, within the portfolios themselves, if we start drilling down here, what percentage of holdings would you say is comprised of ETFs?
2: So
4: and a large part of our business is is being uh, kind of in that ETF strategist role. So obviously in, in those portfolios, um, we're talking about 100%. Uh, is, is it going to be, is it gonna be in, in the ETF uh, wrapper? Um, and we, you know, we just we just we love the flexibility that you can get uh, with with that wrapper. We love sort of the innovation that we're that we're seeing in in, in the space, and, and just you know, like it's, it is a it's a highly highly efficient way to express investment views, um, especially in some of the, non, the more non traditional uh, asset classes like I mean, even even something like emerging market fixed income or or some of the commodity space. You know, there is just ways to get exposures in those portfolios for lower minimum accounts um, than than would otherwise be possible without it.
1: And and take us through one of these portfolios just at a high level. We don't have to get into individual holdings, but let's say if we take uh, a portfolio on the gain stage, uh, one of the accumulation strategies, what types of ETFs will you use? Are we talking plain vanilla here? Will you go smart beta, uh, active, all of the above? What what, what do these portfolios typically look like?
4: it's a great question. So it it is all of the above, (laughs) Um, so, so you know, you know, certainly, like some of these, you know, like as being an eight billion dollar manager, we have we certainly have liquidity screens um, that we have to, to, to get through. So, you know, that, that that is that is sort of the first thing. But after we get through those, um, you know, we, we we are we're very facile with the with the factor space um, and and sort of the quantitative investing space. And so, yeah, certainly all the smart beta things are in play for us. Right. Um, all the all the sector ETFs are going to be in play for us. Um, you know, all, like all, all all the standard passive stuffs going to be in play for us. Um and, and on, certainly all the all the international stuff's going be in play for us. And so on the on the, on the game stage, when we talk about the equity side of the portfolio, um, it really is pretty much everything every way you want to slice it up. like we're we're able to look at it, and so we do look at it. Um, we don't do we, we're primarily going to be more passive on the on the equity side though, because there are so many different ways to slice and dice that um, that 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 uh, that universe. Um, and, and I'm, I'm, by the way, I'm including smart beta in the, in the passive category because at least it's systematic. So, like, let's we'll, we'll, we'll think about, like, passive as being either systematic or, 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 you know, kind of standard definition of passive. Um, and so, you know, we, we, certainly, like, have a, have a library of, of, of things we can select from on the equity side. When we get the fixed income side, though, um, we, we're, we're much more inclined to, uh, to, 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 you know, go more towards the active side of the world. Um, because, because the fixed income universe is still kind of wild, wild west. Um, you can still make money taking individual bonds. There are managers that have skill that that is, demonst- is demonstrable in, in that world, and uh, that. And so, you know, yes, we will use the HYGs of the world and the LQDs and the and the and the, 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 I, the TLTs. You know, but like we'll use some of the big liquid uh, kind of kind of building blocks uh, in that space. But we're much more likely to, to go into more of an act, like an active mortgage product or or an active high yield product or an active uh, corporate product. Um, because because we do think you can actually, like, that is a, a worthwhile way to to, to generate alpha um, on on that side of the portfolio. I'm not sure if that was helpful.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, I had Vetify's Tom Leiden on earlier, and we walked through some advisor polling data, and what you laid out actually comports with that, in that uh, we're seeing more advisors and portfolio strategists look too active on the fixed income side versus, to your point, even if you're using equity ETFs in an active man- uh, manner, they're still using – you know more plain vanilla and, and smart beta ETFs on that equity side. You mentioned Scott liquidity screens. Um, what else are you looking for in an ETF? Like, what might quickly disqualify an ETF uh, for, for use besides liquidity? What does what, what your overall due diligence process look like?
4: So you know, it's it's the like it starts with all the same stuff that everybody else in the world does. Like, is, you know, does, is, is sort of first level liquidity there? If, it, if it's if it's not, then uh, you know, then then is sort of the, at least the underlying basket liquid enough to support the kinds of trades that we need to do. So I don't, I don't think we're doing anything particularly uh, you know, like unique or special on, 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 that, on that side of the world. I mean, I think we're doing the things that like, sort of any pro would do. Um, but, the, but the thing that we do need to take account of, at least especially at Horizon, being a goals-based manager, is one of, like, one of our tenants. I have to back up a half a in order to answer this properly and apologize like, – one of our tenants on the investment management side that is really important to us is this concept of expectational certainty. And, what, and what, I mean, what I mean by that is if the market's going up or the market's going down or the market's going sideways, like, you've got to tell me what the thing's going to do. You've got you to tell me what the is going to do. You've got to tell me what the ETF's going to do. Like, you can usually get two of those three right. You can't usually get all three of them right. And, and, so, and so, like, there's always a pay for, in other words. Like, you know, I, I, I can get the up market right and I can get the sideways market right, but it's going to really underperform in the down market or, you know, or, or whatever it is. But but knowing like, what something is like, how something is going to perform in a, in a particular type of market environment ex ante, like before it happened, um, and having that happen through that realized market environment is crucially important for uh, for, for a goals based manager because our portfolios are essentially the the engine for a financial plan. And so you know if you, if you think about like building a financial plan and then like okay what what portfolio do actually match with that financial plan in order to power it like make it actually work. Um, goals-based investing is sort of that bridge between a financial plan and a portfolio. It'll t- tell you, like, here's the portfolio that you need to use to match this financial plan, and that's just step one. Step two is, hey, then I need to track that thing through time, and I need to know if I'm on track or off track. And if I'm off track, if I'm on track, great, no, no easy conversation. If I'm off track, tell me what I need to do to the portfolio or what I need to buy or how I need to change it in order to maximize my my probability that I can get back on track again. That's all. That's this is all preamble to, to this idea that. And when we're evaluating ETFs for, for inclusion in our portfolios, our promise to our clients is that we're going to deliver expectational certainty to you, to you. Like I can match your financial plan with a portfolio in a very robust and repeatable way. In order for me to do that, the instruments that I'm using inside the portfolio must also demonstrate a high degree of this concept of expectational certainty. Um, and, and so the, 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 the kind of the next level of thing that we do when we're, um, when we're evaluating ETFs for possible inclusion in our portfolios is you know I'll talk to the manager and I'll say listen here and I'll kind of lay it out like I just did. I'll say hey, you know in an up market or a down market or a size based market like what, like when would you expect your your strategy or, the, or your your ETF to do well? When do you expect it to do poorly? Uh, or or sort of you know like in the middle? Um, and, and you know we'll do that for like equity market kind of performance. We'll do that for different rate environments, different inflation environments. You know, kind of a, a little bit of a like a a very light scenario uh, uh, kind of stress test idea. And. Well, I'll just listen to what they say, and then we'll say, okay, well, you said it was going to do this in this type of environment, and then we'll go back and we can either run an, an like an index on it or we'll kind of reverse engineer the process and we'll do it ourselves or we'll look at the live track if, if there's enough of it and see if it actually did that. Um, and so those ETFs that uh, that can pass that expectational certainty uh, test uh, were, and, and have sufficient liquidity and assets in them for us to be able to trade it effectively um, can, can kind of get through. There are some, though, and some some of the more complicated ones especially – um that that fail that test. And so they might be big and they might be kinda of cool looking and being a driverless guy, I love complicated stuff. Um, but uh, it's gotta be able to work. And it's gotta it's gotta realize what um the that expectation certainty component um, to his return stream and, and if and if it can't do that we just can't use it. Doesn't mean the thing's evil but can, it can be used inside of our gold-based portfolios.
1: Scott, just about a minute left here. One of my favorite questions to ask portfolio strategists, and I think it's right on this topic, is are there any ETFs that you wish existed but don't? You, you know, when you talk about ETFs. Um you know, not passing tests or, or not being able to meet client expectations are there areas that you've seen in portfolio management where you're unable to meet client expectations because the product doesn't actually exist yeah i i mean, I, I think that
4: I still think that fixing them universe could be chopped up a little bit more finely um and, and i and I know people have you know different people have tried this in terms of like getting getting different duration buckets and getting different sort of credit buckets um in in there but but you know, frankly, the liquidity and the sort of the management of those of those products hasn't really met our expectations yet. And so, our, our ability to to be very precise in the fixed income part of our, our investment mandate, um, I would I would love I would love the ability to, to 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 be more precise on that and still use ETF wrapper, than have to sort of go back and rely on individual bonds and and all the headaches that that come along with trying to manage individual bond portfolios. And so, I would say just like a little bit more fine dicing of the of the credit space specifically, um, but both the credit and the duration space would be. Um, you know, kind of, kind of really neat things. I, I, I you know, again, like being a derivatives guy, like I, I, the, the, some of the 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 the, the ETS that are out there that are basically derivatives in, a, in, a, in an ETF wrapper can be can be really interesting, but it really comes down to use cases um, and, and and stress and you know how they're going to trade in stress environments. Um, and so, like that, you know, I don't think we need more complication um, necessarily in the ETF space, but but I but I would love a little bit more precision inside the fixed income world.
1: If uh, advisors are interested in working with you, what does that process look like? What, what, what should be their first step?
4: Uh, probably just go to the, go to the website and, and, and call our internal desk and, and figure out you know, sort of where, where you come through. You know, we work with, with a bunch of independent broker-dealers. That's sort of our bread and butter, um, but, you know, in the IBD space and the RIA space. Um, but, but I would just go to horizoninvestments.com and, and um, call into the, call in the internal desk, and we'll, we'll get you directed to the right place to at least get started.
1: Scott, enjoyed the uh, conversation. Thank you for joining me this week. Appreciate it, Nate. That was Scott Ladner, Chief Investment Officer of Horizon Investments. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Motley Fool Asset Management. If you would like to learn more about Motley Fool Asset Management's ETFs, you can visit fooletfs.com slash ETF Prime. Next week, I'll be joined by BNY Mellon's Ben Slavin, uh, who probably knows everything there's possibly to know about ETFs. Uh, We're going to highlight some of the biggest current ETF trends. And then Avantis' Phil McKinnis will discuss the, the massive success of their ETF lineup, which has already eclipsed $20 billion in less than four years. So look forward to that conversation. Until then, have a great week, everyone.